everyone, and welcome back to The Lone Conservative. Now, you may be noticing that I'm sounding more upbeat than usual, especially after just getting over the flu, and that's because I have someone on today who I've been wanting to talk to for a long time. She is a host of the Life As She Knows It podcast. She's an advocate for survivors of sexual assault, a motivational speaker, and recently she spoke at Reset, which is a TEDx Mile High event. Kimberly Corbin, thank you so much for coming on. Yay, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> I have to be honest, I was nervous to have you on because I've, I've been following you for a little while now, and I really love almost everything you do. I think what you do is inspirational, especially when you've had such a traumatic experience, and it's an experience that most people don't get over in their lives, but you've decided to bravely go forward with it and use it to empower other women. I just find that very inspirational, and it's, it's something that really drew me to you. Ah, well, thank you very much. I mean, I've been speaking out publicly since uh, my attacker was found guilty after a jury trial, and this is where the message has always stayed. So politics has always just kind of been a secondary thing um, that I jokingly am in by accident, but the true core of my message is always surrounding victim advocacy. So yeah, it it's nice to have that guidepost and know that everything I do should revolve around supporting survivors. Well, and you said during the TED Talk that you don't really like to debate, like political debate isn't oh really God. a thing that you're into, and Heck yet you're no. married to a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's a, that's not a strong suit. However, I did have a conversation earlier this week, um, and my husband Mike overheard it, and he's like, well, that was a debate. I'm like, oh, okay, got it, got it. it. When it's something that I'm passionate about and that I know like backwards and forwards, and I feel like I have facts and logic on my side, then yes. But debating in general, like, uh, no, Twitter in and of itself just is one big website for cringe for me. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, debate's not typically my thing. Um, but when I feel like, hey, this is my lane, I can speak on behalf of somebody who can't speak for themselves, then yes, I suppose I can engage. <laughs> um, what I find really I, I honestly, I can't believe that you got into politics by accident. Like the one of your first <laughs> political activities was going to uh, your Colorado legislatures and telling them not to <laughs> ban concealed carry on campus. What was that like for you going in front of all those people for the first time, not expecting the political career that you have now to develop? I wouldn't quite call it a political career because <laughs> I don't know. That just it, it sounds weird. <laughs> um, that I, it wasn't that I didn't know anything about politics. I mean, I followed it somewhat, but I would not have called myself a politico by any means. Mm -hmm. um, so when I went and actually spoke in front of them, it was my second time. The first time I had spoken was, I want to say in like 2009, and it was on um, bond conditions. So it was something completely separate. It had to do with the advocacy world. But when I spoke out on this, it was personal. It was something that would impact my everyday life because I chose to carry concealed and these are the people that are elected to represent myself and fellow constituents. And we are supposed to take an active role in our government. They are elected to serve us and represent us, not the other way around. And I kind of just felt like it was my duty to speak up. So going down there, I hadn't really weighed what that might look like. And it was interesting, to say the least. Uh, it got me involved to the point that I felt comfortable at that time. And then when things kind of escalated from there and uh, there were larger and larger, I don't want to say stages, but folks watching, it was still the same message. 
and you've, you've, you've described that there are people out there that try to use the issue of sexual, sexual assault to score political yes. points. And I think one of the most prominent examples of this right now is in Virginia, when you have Lieutenant Governor Fairfax. A lot of the people who came right. out immediately against Kavanaugh and against Donald Trump, who I, I think had legitimate accusa accusations le levied against him, but a lot of people who were preaching a lot of the Me Too movement core narratives are now silent on Fairfax. And I, I, it annoys me and it frustrates me, the hypocrisy that you see on both the left and the right, that they're willing to call out sexual assault, but they're not willing to call it out when it's one of their own. Right. And that's exactly the heart of what I was trying to address in that TED Talk. I have watched this happen now for many years, and it's always going one side or the other. But when we saw the Me Too movement hit basically the interwebs, um, fun side fact, this has been around since 2006. And the founder of the Me Too movement is actually a gal named Tarana Burke. Um, she just also gave her TED Women talk. Um, phenomenal advocate for all kinds of survivors. And that's where it originated. It wasn't a Melissa Milano tweet, but that's what caught the most attention. So as we saw Me Too start to happen, that was something I was fully embracing because it was giving folks an outlet to say, I don't have to share my entire story, but I just need to feel connected. And I need people to know that this happened to me too. And for better or worse, it was a moment where, hey, we know that we aren't alone in this. Now, as we saw it take off, it was quickly under the wing of your, your Democrats, your liberals, your progressives, and it was almost adopted to fit that narrative instead, when in reality, this is something that impacts people regardless of how you vote, regardless of your gender, of who you love, or you know the color of your skin. None of that matters. This impacts everyone. So to see this kind of take off and then take on different forms, as we saw happen in the Kavanaugh hearings especially, it puts survivors right in the crosshairs because regardless of what political football is being played with sex assault being thrown around in the media like that, the only people that are losing are those who have experienced this and that have this shoved in their face in headlines and in tweets and in scrolling. And there's just a feeling of not being able to get away from it. Even if the story itself is or isn't true, it doesn't matter because it's impacting survivors. When we speak about them, we have to have that in our hearts and on our minds that this is impacting real people and your words do matter. And with it's, it's kind of a thing that happens in politics that pure movements, like the Me Too movement is a pure movement, mm -hmm. but it starts to get co-opted by one of the two sides. So a lot of people on the Correct. right, for example, they'll argue that feminism at this point, at, at the very least, the term as we know it, has been co-opted by the radical left. Do you think the Me Too movement right. is facing that same threat right now? Or do you think, is, is there still a way to save it? Because I've noticed that the left has kind of attached itself to it and they've made it more and more political to the point where now sexual assault is becoming more of a political issue than, as you say during your talk, a human rights one. So is there a way to stop this politicization of the movement? Absolutely. And I kind of outline that in the talk as well. This is a human rights issue. Again, it's impacting everyone. And to just turn a blind eye to it because of the way one other person may vote is doing a disservice to everyone as a whole. We don't have to like each other. We don't have to always agree with each other. That's what makes this country great. But to look at this epidemic and say, 
um, I'm going to ignore that half because I can't get over my own cognitive dissonance is not a healthy state to be in. But that's what we're seeing over and over. And it's being reinforced each time you are screaming into an echo chamber. You're not going to get any other kind of feedback unless you're seeking it out. Yeah. And and I had this moment too where you were just saying that. I'm like, oh, we're beyond that threat. It's threat level midnight. Please don't put that in there. <laughs> <laughs> I watch a lot of The Office, okay? <laughs> feel f- I mean, a lot of millennials like The Office, so feel free to make those references here. <laughs> oh my gosh. I don't even know if I qualify necessarily as a millennial. So I was born in 85, mm-hmm. which I don't care if I date myself or whatever. <laughs> but I will say whether or not I'm a millennial doesn't matter. I bought a food processor today and was super excited about it. So that'll tell you where I'm at in life. I've noticed like this is totally off topic, but I've just noticed like a lot of millennials. Have you ever heard the thing that people will say like, oh, I was born in the wrong generation? Yes. Yes. My co-host Kirsta on Life As She Knows It. (laughs) Yeah. She's totally wrong generation. (laughs) There's, there's some people who will say that where I'm like, okay, yeah. Like if you're, if you're listening to, I don't know, Frank Sinatra music instead of Drake, I'd say you were probably born in the wrong generation, but there are some people who's like, they'll see something that a millennial does that they don't like. And they'll just be like, oh, I was born in the wrong generation. It's like, I think the phrase is becoming overused. Probably, but also so is Drake. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> don't let anyone in Lone Conservative know you said that. It's a. Uh... <laughs> I'm sorry. I just I can't. I can't. I can't do it. I'm also at the point in my life too, though, where I'm watching Disney movies with my daughter, and I'm agreeing with the parents in the Disney movies more. Like, also, I mean, this is going downhill quickly. And I learned to fit it, fold a fitted sheet last year. <laughs> Man, this is a uh, yeah. I'm I'm totally adulting over here. <laughs> I so my mom my mom's like one of those I love her so much so this isn't like trying to be mean to her but she's like one of those helicopter moms like if I call her saying I have the common cold mm-hmm. she'll be like I'm making you a doctor appointment I'm go go buy vitamin C blah 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 and <laughs> I just recently got the flu and I'm just getting over the worst part of it and mm-hmm. I went to the doctor like right away I didn't even tell her and she called me she's like I am so proud of you I didn't even have to make a doctor's appointment I'm like oh thanks <laughs> thanks mom i'm gonna go back to my avocado toast now (laughs) (laughs) well i have to say on the millennial topic though i have loved getting to know lone conservative and all of your contributors basically online to start with it was so cool to pick up twitter and all of these other social media forms and see such a diverse yet educated group of people and it's like oh yeah i i would consider myself part of this uh lone conservative sweet <laughs> cold era but like on the side like not like i'm a regular mom but i'm a cool mom sort of deal and i have just loved getting all of these different takes and seeing you guys uh, talk back and forth through these issues in a respectful manner is something i really wish more people would take note of it's so amazing. I found Lone Conservative. I mean, obviously, by the way, I'm your favorite contributor, right? Like, there's. But, but, but of course. Yeah. Okay. So I, I just had to get that out of the way, or I, I would have had to kick you off the podcast. But <laughs> I found Lone Sorry, Conservative. Sorry, Sienna. <laughs> <laughs> I found Lone Conservative when I was a senior in high school. And I was kind yeah. of that nerd in high school who didn't really have any friends. I was all about politics. And it was, I was like, so up until my senior year, I was like a lib to use the term unironically. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, and when I found Lone Conservative and I found a group of people that I could actually talk to about this stuff without yelling at me 
or calling me a bigot or saying that I had some inherent privilege because I had certain doubts about left-wing ideology. It was, it, was, mm-hmm. it was really a breath of fresh air. I just think everyone needs someone who they can talk to politically or personally when there's a group of people around them or a culture around them that doesn't allow them to speak up. Right. Well, and what I've loved too, having visited campuses now for the last, oh gosh, I bet 10 years, is that the message of advocacy or the the parts of politics that I talk about don't just resonate with one side or the other. All I'm asking for is is a discussion. Maybe maybe that's where the debate part comes in, because I don't see debate as actual debate anymore. It's more screaming match in a fight, and I just yes. don't need that. <laughs> but I love the engaged and educated conversation. Um, I wrote an article for Future Female Leaders because my good friend Amanda Owens and I love talking these out and I've loved that group of people as well. And so I penned an article last week that just did like a top 10 things from behind the scenes at um, getting to a TED Talk. And one of the things was that this community that we built with myself and the fellow speakers going through this process that was long and tough and draining was that we came from really different backgrounds. We held really different beliefs. And at the end of the day, these were the people that were pushing me to be better in how I voiced my arguments, to be better about how I thought about a topic or an issue from all sides, instead of just having my one and digging my heels in and saying, nope, this is the way that it's going to be. If you aren't looking for other outlets or other opinions or different ways of thinking and constantly trying to either test or expand your position, then you're going to get run over. It's going to get to the point where you are that outdated person, that outdated generation. Progressive doesn't have to be a nasty word. It means that you're continuously improving. And when you're looking at it in a political ideology, it can, it's been hijacked and it means something completely different. Mm-hmm. But no matter where you stand, constantly looking to make progress and make things better for yourself and then future generations is exactly what we should be doing. You can't do that unless you're engaged in open and honest conversation with those around you. I've, I've noticed this kind of breaking down. I, I think, by the way, I think it broke down at the very least among the campus left a while ago. Mm-hmm. Like there's obviously amazing individuals, but from what I've just noticed about broad, broader left-wing culture on campus is the idea of civil conversation is probably is, is broken down. And I've seen that on the right as well. Because I like what yeah. you said about debate just being a normal discussion. It's supposed to be in good faith. A lot of debate now, what, what, how it's being perceived by the right is, and I love Ben Shapiro. So this isn't a knock on Ben mm-hmm. Shapiro. It's people who try to be exactly <laughs> like him. They, sure. they try to own the libs in every single debate they get into. I'm like, this isn't a reasoned debate. There's no winner here. There's no convincing anyone else here. You're just trying to prove that you are right. Right. And those are the conversations that I do to try to stay away from. Those are the ones I'm saying when I don't like debate. But when I talk about having an actual conversation, I actively seek those out. So maybe, you know, there's there's a little bit of a difference from from what I say to what that actually means. But when I think of debate, I'm thinking of the televised ones that we're seeing now where there's actual name calling and the yes. things that you would get suspended or thrown in timeout for. I have to put my children in timeout for some of the things our elected officials are doing now on public television. Something's not right here. Well, so that that brings up the question, do you think that the political breakdown, like the, the breakdown in political discourse, was it started by Trump or was Trump just 
the ex- the catalyst of this what we're seeing right now. Trump was a microcosm of something that's been happening for a long, long time, and that is probably why he was elevated the way that he was. People looked at him and thought he's giving a voice, regardless of what it actually is, to the way that I've been feeling and that I can't naturally express or I feel like I'm not heard and suddenly here's somebody who's willing to say the things that other people won't. I understand why there was so much buy-in. And for me, that point really came when there was all the tapes from Access Hollywood and things and I got to the point where I'm like, I can't in good in good heart support somebody like this because that in and of itself, no matter how troubling, no matter how you want to explain it away, shows a mindset that we can't embrace, we can't elevate, and we can't justify. There's very few things that I get offended over, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. Um, But when we're talking about consent, that's going to be one of them. And you know what? It's okay for you to not have lived your entire life that way. It's okay to learn. It's okay to seek those, um, those educational opportunities out and say, oh, I haven't always, I haven't always been that good on this topic, but it's something that we need to look to now and say, yeah, I'm going to stand up for what's right. But then you have Gillette commercials and PETA commercials that, oh my gosh, if you haven't saw that yet, please don't because I'm, I think I tweeted this. I'm quite certain that that's what the people in Bird Box saw when they took off their blindfolds. <laughs> Those things are almost like the virtue signaling, just stroking the, the fire more than anything. It's not a conversation. It's a private held company that's jumping in on a culture that desperately needs or feels like it needs direction. And so we're not getting anything tangible out of that. I hate to quote PewDiePie, but yeah, he, he did. Like <laughs> Is the, that how you say it? Yes. Oh my gosh, I've never actually heard someone say it, so I avoid saying it. <laughs> it's it's PewDiePie. I, I know people okay. who say Pie, and I'm like, okay. Uh, but he and actually, I'm always over here, pew, pew, pew. <laughs> He made a really (laughs) good video on the Gillette. Like I was surprised he made a good political video. And like one of the things that he said was they, I don't know why so many people are defending this. He's like, it's a private corporation. They do not care. They're just trying to use this to make money. So it's like, why are you expending political capital over defending a bad ad? It's right. I don't don't, know. don't worry about it. You don't like it. Don't buy the razor. It doesn't have to be the end of the world. And I feel like that has been a big transition that's happened even in the last decade. If you didn't like something, cool, shut it off. Yeah. You did not have to basically end up having a meltdown on whatever app you have open on your phone. Yeah, I think the whole the whole reaction, I, I mean, I actually muted. I'd never mute or block anyone. This was the first time I muted a word on Twitter. I muted Gillette. I was like, I was so sick of seeing people getting Can't. angry or defending it. It was like, the ad was bad. Don't have a meltdown about it. It's a private organization. I just, I think people are too prone to overreaction nowadays. And yeah. it's something that, it's one of my pet peeves that I try not to overreact about things. And it's it's just something that annoys me to no end. Yeah. And I, I don't think that it was necessarily bad, but I don't really think it was good either. If you want to sell me a razor, show me... The razor shaving a bear. I will <laughs> buy that. I will throw my money at you. I don't. I don't care. I get enough of the, um, the education elsewhere, and it's because I'm seeking that out. So maybe it was aimed at people who don't necessarily do that on a daily basis. But 
I don't know if anything, they were smart in their their PR and advertising because that was a top trending topic. And we all know Gillette now. Of course. And actually, something I wanted to ask you, it's kind of like on the topic of toxic masculinity. (laughs) I've seen a lot of people on the right kind of start to at first, I think I think there was kind of bipartisan support to some extent, to some extent Mm -hmm. of the Mm -hmm. Me Too movement. And now you see as the left is trying to to co-opt it, the right hasn't just become hostile to the left's co-option of the Me Too movement, but they they become hostile to the Me Too movement as a whole. And I think that's because people will try to lump in regular, normal male masculinity with with toxic masculinity. And what can we do to get people on the right to understand that sexual, like like you've said, and we've said it earlier, that sexual assault isn't a political issue that parts of the Me Too movement that act out of political malice are co-options and not what it actually stands for. Well, here's the deal, and it may be the unpopular opinion for both sides, which is apparently just my jam anymore. Uh, (laughs) I don't think that toxic masculinity, toxic femininity is the problem. It's there are people that are just plain toxic. It You can be, uh, sorry, I don't know if you're an explicit content podcast, but we are. So there's such thing as just being a toxic douchebag. And (laughs) that is really what this is getting down to. You can have masculine traits and be a good man. You can have a feminine traits and be a bad woman. So there's no real middle ground here, but just to slap that label on it, I understand where it came from. And I do think that we need to address toxic traits, toxic personalities, and toxic acts as they are. But to hear those two words put together and suddenly be offended or in support of isn't doing anyone justice either. So when I look at what they are traditionally talking about as, quote, toxic masculinity, I understand that. I get the the power and control struggle. And I understand that men are more likely to commit crimes against women or other men, but it's not because of masculinity necessarily. It's because of a whole host of other factors that you can count masculinity out of. There may be a broken down home. There may be past abuse. There may be a possibility of addictions or a whole bunch of other things. But it doesn't have to be just the masculinity part. So I hear this back and forth on Twitter and the same kind of thing. I don't want to react one way or the other because you're automatically shoved in one political box or another and nothing else you say is going to get through to folks. I mean, the best arguments aren't happening in 280 characters or less. They're happening when we have face-to-face conversations. Kirsten and I um, looked at this topic and how to address it, and it's kind of been the same thing. We consider ourselves feminists, but not the get enraged about everything just because other, quote, feminists are saying so. It's the equality part of it. I don't have to be represented by a woman to be represented. Would I love to? Sure. It doesn't make a difference, though. I want the best person for the job, regardless of how they identify. I love that. So you're not basically not a third wave feminist. Right. I'm more of a suffragette folk type <laughs> sister. Like, probably more. Oh, I'd hate to say I was born in the wrong era. <laughs> <laughs> you don't. But no, it, it's it's more of <laughs> it's more of the the feeling of wanting that equality in those open conversations and to also address that it's OK for men to feel things as well. And that's been a big holdout in the mental health community as well. So making sure that you're allowed to go against what traditional masculinity would be, like a suck it up and rub some dirt on it and say, hey, 
my serotonin levels may be imbalanced right now and it's okay if I seek help. Same as if I had a cold, I would go to the doctor. I'm going to get help mentally because you know what? I, I need a little bit to get me over this hump. It's okay. Well, so you, you talk kind of about um, being put into a box and then no one listens to you. It's, I, yes. that's by the way, that's one of the favorite parts about my favorite parts about your tech talk. And I say it, say it on the podcast all the time that the sooner we can see fellow Americans who disagree with us as just fellow Americans who disagree with us and not enemies and not right. evil people is mm -hmm. the day that the country actually takes a step forward. But how do you personally get around being put into that little category where no one's going to listen to you anymore? How do you get around? Because you, you've, you've said that various organizations have tried to co-opt your experience as something political, something they can use to score political points. Mm -hmm. And you gave a few examples, like the woman who didn't care about your family's safety, despite your concerns, because they weren't part of the agreement or the person who, after you gave a talk, came up and said that the CDC stat that you referenced was just uh, liberal propaganda, which, by the way, even if they disagree with the stat, is pretty rude. But, but how do you get, how do you personally avoid having your experience politicized to the extent that people just see you as another talking head for a specific ideology? And how do you get around, just in general, being placed into that little box to the point where no one's going to listen to you anymore? Oh, wow. It's, it's a tough and loaded question and one that has taken me several years to unpack. So as best as I can summarize, this happened the most over probably the 2017 year um, when I really started seeing that they didn't care about me as a person, me as a survivor, what I had been through. They cared about how they could use it. If I wasn't willing to cooperate, fine. We'll find another rape victim. Like those were pretty spot on words that were used. And that's unfortunate because that means that you're putting a narrative or a message above the person. It doesn't have to be me. I have always said, I don't care if people remember my name or face. That's not what I'm doing this for. So let at least one person out there know that they're not struggling through this alone. There was a time where I couldn't speak out publicly and it was horrifying. And to know that even back then, there possibly were people that were fighting on my behalf without me knowing it was comforting. And so as soon as I found my voice, that was empowering to me. And I did this without any involvement in politics for many years. Then when I speak out on the Second Amendment, it's this whole group of people who maybe hadn't heard a sexual assault advocacy message, a genuine one, and I was happy to deliver that. But as soon as I saw that start being hijacked and used in ways that I wasn't consenting to anymore, it took a real gut check and some, some conversations, you know, with my husband, with my family, with my friends to say, this isn't okay. And I don't have to put up with it just because I believe in the movement. So stepping away from things and figuring out, all right, this isn't the place for me. I don't want anything else to do with politics. I mean, it hurt because it was two things that I desperately believed in and think that more people need to have honest conversations about. And it was stepping on that red dot in December that helped me take that story back. I took my power back on my own by voicing my authentic story, even though I knew it was going to be unpopular, even though I knew that there was going to be backlash and people that were going to be mad. But if you're mad about me voicing my true and authentic story, did you care about it in the first place? 
So that's probably I, I don't know how other how else to summarize that other than there's there's power in using your voice and not having to to feel like you have to align with every single thing someone else or some organization thinks. It's courageous that you took the path you not to brown nose, <laughs> but it's courageous <laughs> that you took the path you took too, because I've seen I'm not even that experienced in politics. Like I'm no political, I'm no expert. I but I've still seen the people who they go in with pure intentions yeah, and they find not just their experiences or whatever getting co-opted, they themselves consent to it and they right. become a part of that political machine. So what you did, it, it takes a lot of bravery and it's very noble well, and I'm glad you did it. Thank you. And I don't want to be painted as a victim. I guess the, that should be a big piece that I do point out even after this is published. I'm not doing this to say, oh, poor me. It was the I was enthusiastic and probably naive to a point, and I wanted to be so involved, and I consented to do a lot of different things. It was when I stopped consenting that it was a problem. And there are the same kinds of things that we teach in the advocacy community and healthy relationships in wanting to eradicate sexual violence of any kind. Consent matters. It's as easy as that. One thing I wanted to ask you, uh, and it's it's kind of I've noticed in the so I don't really get involved in the how should I say the the consent arguments. I just sure. like to see what a majority of the people say, and mm -hmm. usually what a majority of the people say, I will I'll I'll take that as or not just the majority of people, but what the experts say, I will yeah, go with no. that. Like the T video, I love that video. That's a really good. Have you ever seen uh, that? Oh yeah, oh yeah, really it's good phenomenal. video. Um, what I wanted to ask you though, is there's, there's kind of been an argument in the consent community and I don't really know how I feel about it because I have friends who have had also similar experiences to yours on either sides of the issue. It's when someone's drunk and under law, I believe it's when you're drunk, you, you technically can't give consent, but Correct. it's like when two people are drunk, if two people are drunk and they engage in sexual intercourse, is that still a consent issue or is it just would you not consider that a consent issue? It's it's kind of one of the things that's always confused me. This is a hard one from a legal standpoint to prove. And that bleed over is where the, the consent conversation sometimes comes off the rails. Just because you can't prove it in court doesn't mean that it was against your will. Uh, two adults can drink alcohol and consent. It's when one of them does not or does not feel the free will to say no or to not consent that you have a problem. And it, I don't want to say that it goes on a case-by-case -case basis, but just know that there, there are legal issues that surround that. And if you want to know more, you can look it up state by state because uh, there are some different definitions that are still on the books. But no, even if you're drunk, you still have the ability to give your consent or to not give your consent. You can't be blamed for drinking alcohol. If somebody goes out and gets completely hammered one night, they're not asking to be raped. They probably expected a hangover. Yeah. Well, I, I was talking less about, I understand that. I was saying like yeah, more, it's, yeah. a, it's a mutual, like a guy and a girl are both drunk and they both agree to consensual sex. And then it's it's rare, but it happens sometimes. And then the it, it, it gets it gets alleged as a rape despite the fact that they were both drunk and they both gave consent to have sex. That was my, that was my main thing. It seems. Yeah. Well, I, I, that's one of the things that confuses me and kind of worries me about. Right. I'm by the way, I'm a trad con. I don't go to any of the crazy parties. <laughs> I'm not, I'm a, not a 
sex before marriage kind of guy. But I see some of my friends sometimes like they'll go to a party and they both they and the girls will get drunk and they'll have like a drunk. Both of them have a consensual drunken inner like sexual action. I'm being like Hank Hill here. They'll both have a sexual um, <laughs> relation with each other. And it worries me that possibly despite the fact that she was drunk, he was drunk. They both consented. It could still possibly be alleged as a rape. That was that was the thing that I was asking. Not like a, a sober guy yeah. takes advantage of a drunk girl. Oh, no, or- no. No, um, and it's the same thing though. Consent's going to matter. Um, yeah. If the, both of those adults are consenting to it at that time throughout the duration of that act, that's consent. They, yeah, I mean, there's a a whole list of things that you could go about and do the what ifs. But I mean, if you are consenting, that's that's consent. Now, if somebody is completely plowed, and they've only the only person has only had one or two drinks, and I don't just mean that in a gender stereotypical way then yeah, that's when you can get into some issues. Yeah. No, that's that's when I, eh, that's awful. That's, yeah, I think yeah. that's, ta- even if you've just had one or two drinks and they're flat, that's taking advantage of someone. Right. Um, it's, that's, that's the only reason, that's the only thing about consent that I've ever been confused by because I've just noticed when people talk about it, it's it seems like people are so harshly divided on the specific, you know, they're both drunk and they both give consent issue. It's, I just try to stay away from the argument. I'm waiting for one side <laughs> to, right. to win well, out. The, the, easy, the easy black and white rule to live by is unless it's an enthusiastic, uncoursed yes, it's a no. And it's okay. Like, you'll live. I promise. Good rule. It doesn't, it doesn't have to happen that way. But unless it is an enthusiastic, uncoursed yes, then it is a no. So speaking of consent, by the way, what do you define as... I know there's like an official definition and everything, but when I hear people say the term sexual assault, mm-hmm. it usually implies just rape. And I think that does a, a disservice to the term sexual assault and the sexual assault that, that people experience that isn't just rape. So it's what do you define as sexual assault? I tend to abide by the legal definition, which is unwanted um, touching penetration um, you go down that list. Sexual assault is not just penetrating rape. It can be a whole host of different things, including a molestation. This was a big argument when the Me Too movement really started getting some legs under it is that people were like asking me if I was ticked that people who were being harassed in the workplace or you know, harassed in general or not quote, as they they say, quote, full on raped, if that's doing a disservice and discrediting what I went through. I don't know what they were expecting, but my answer is hell no, because these are escalating different types of behaviors. Sexual assault is not a sexually motivated crime, regardless of what headlines may want you to think. It's a power and control driven crime by one person wanting to exert power and control over another person. On the right, we should look at this as a personal liberties discussion. This is somebody who wants to stay in control of themselves and just worry about themselves, and you have somebody else that's impugning or impeding on their personal liberty. So when I hear sexual assault, that can mean a whole lot of different things. And you know what? It's not my place to ask what that means to them, I guess, mm-hmm. because I look at this as you're still going through a lot of trauma, and you're going to experience trauma the same way that I did. Mine happened to be a stranger who broke into my apartment and full on raped me, as someone would say. It doesn't mean that the girl who was 
grabbed or molested by somebody that she knew isn't going to experience trauma the same way that I am. So I hated that segregation of, oh, well, this is this shouldn't count in this movement or this should, because quite frankly, if more people stood up to that kind of inappropriate behavior earlier on, you'd probably decrease the amount of, quote, actual rapes that happen. Yeah, my my whole belief, and I, I may be wrong, but my whole belief on on rapists in general is that it's it's kind of an escalation. Like they don't go outside their home one day and they decide, oh, I'm going to rape someone. It's they commit se- salty actions. I, I wish I had a better mm-hmm. term for it, but they commit actions <laughs> of sexual assault on a Correct. scale, and it continues to go mm-hmm. up and up and up, and no one confronts them on it. And then they get in their head that they can get away with rape, and it's yep. it's evil. And I've just noticed when the only reason I asked you that, I know it's probably an awkward question, but the only reason I asked that is because when I see people uh, in the political world talking about sexual assault, it's very often a conflation with just rape. Right. And that, again, can be part of that narrative that they're looking to push. And it doesn't have to be. This is something where someone else's personal liberties um, and autonomy over their own body was violated. If you're uncomfortable talking about sexual assault, look at it in those terms. As politicos, you should be able to understand that. I mean, we want we want ownership over our our person, over our property, and we don't want other people to tell us what we should be doing with that. The same could be said about sexual assault. We don't want to be made to do something else or have something done to us without our consent. Well, you you've told your story on this podcast and and in a lot of places, and it's given women, a lot of women, I can imagine, the courage to speak up and the courage to be seen as, and to be, identify as survivors instead of victims. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you, I think it was one of the really high points of you being able to tell your story was in 2016, when you got to ask Obama a question on his executive overreach on the Second Amendment at a town hall. Mm-hmm. I you said during the TED talk, unless I'm mistaken, that like you were, you were shaky voiced and I couldn't even tell. So you did a really good job. Oh, I was nervous. Uh, I would be, and like, <laughs> I, it's no, it's no secret. I'm not a fan of Obama on this podcast, but it's just the position. <laughs> it's you're, you're talking to one of the most powerful men in the world. You're telling your story to one of the most powerful people out there. How surreal yep. was it to, to be able to confront him on the issue of the second amendment and to be able to tell your story in front of him and so many people? This placed two things that were near and dear to my heart on a national scale. And when I say that I was naive and not a politico, I'm not kidding. I got asked to fly out there and do this. And I literally was like, oh, maybe my hometown newspaper will write an article about it. (laughs) I had no clue what kind of reach a CNN or a national news network would have. And I don't think I fully grasped just how huge the Second Amendment debate was at that specific juncture. I'd seen it happen a couple years prior in Colorado, and it was when I was watching this press conference that prompted this whole thing. It was almost like I was watching the same thing happen over again on a larger scale. And so when I flew out there, I didn't understand the, oh gosh, the just the weight of what I was doing, which probably helped me. But when I got through and was actually handed the microphone, I'm suddenly just standing in front of somebody else that, you know, it's not a stranger, but I know of them. And it's me divulging a very personal story. And that wasn't the part that I was nervous about. I think that people get that confused. 
I'm not nervous when I go up and speak. I don't care if I look like an idiot. I'm obviously very awkward anyway. And I just stopped caring what people thought of me, which makes public speaking a heck of a lot easier. (laughs) I get nervous because I want to do justice to other survivors who don't feel like they have a voice yet. That's where my nerves come from. And so to stand up and ask him, knowing that there were people out there just like me in 2006 who weren't able to speak out yet, that were going to be listening to me in those headlines like I was talking about, was what made me really nervous. Um, I always thought meeting the president of the United States would come with more pomp and circumstance. And when he actually walked in the room, it was just it was just another person that maybe you've seen on TV before. And so that was that was helpful to me and very calming. For all of the policies and things that I disagree with him on, I have to say, even like in between, like on commercial breaks, he was very kind. Um, he was genuine in how he's talking to me and interacting. It was just that exchange that you're seeing on TV. We heavily disagreed, but it didn't mean that we had to hate each other as people. And I, I've seen a lot of people be like, oh, Obama isn't he's it's very few. I'll say that. But I've seen like some mainstream pundits go like, oh, Obama isn't he's probably not a good person. He's fake. I'm like, eh. I have like I've heard enough behind the scenes stories about him, you know, to just. He seems like a genuine person. He seems like a nice person. He seems like one of those people where I have, like you, I have intense disagreements with him, but he seems like he mm-hmm. thinks he's doing the right thing. And I think that's what matters right. in politics is, is if you're not just in it for political posturing and you really think what you're doing is genuinely right, then we can have a conversation. Right. Well, and I, I've been asked before who I admire most on the other side of the aisle, and my answer has always been Michelle Obama. Because she handles herself with class. And even though we don't agree on policies at all, that's somebody that you can still sit and have a conversation with and see that, hey, this is a real human being. And like you said, another American person who just happens to have different different beliefs. Well, that's okay. If I honestly, if I had to choose who I admired most on the other side, oh, it would it would I'd I'd have to say the Antifa people. I just I like them a lot. I think <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! And this is going downhill quickly. <laughs> that's actually a yeah. That's a really fun exercise to do, though, is to throw out hey, who do you admire on the other side and why? And it's nice to just remember that, like, the world isn't totally falling apart at the seams. It's really okay. No, and it's I think too many people go full on catastrophist nowadays about anything. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep, we see that uh, in the Twitter sphere often, don't we? Yes, it's so. Pr- I mm, so I have to constantly remind <laughs> myself <laughs> that social media is not real life <laughs> because yeah, so many people react on Twitter and on like I'm. This has been said a million times, but I have to say it a million and one. So many people act on Twitter and on Facebook in ways that they would never ever act in real life. It, right. It's it's kind of surreal. Like I've, I've met a few of the people that I really like on Twitter, a few of the people who are like really witty or they're trolls and I meet them in real life and they're nothing like they are on social media. I'm like, okay. <laughs> no, I, I have really tried to be as authentic as possible in my, my social media and keep my awkward self awkward and grounded. And you know what, at the end of the day, I can just put my phone down and, you know, go on living my life. It's pretty great. I have a wonderful family. My husband is just such a supportive rock. And I have four amazing kiddos that that's where things matter. It's not any tweet. It's not any exchange. It's not any argument. 
it's my family and my friends and the things that happen offline that matter most. You need to teach me because it takes a crowbar to pry the <laughs> teach me your ways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, find find ways to ground yourself and those anchor points in your real life, and I promise the content of your <laughs> your social media presence goes up exponentially. It doesn't have to be quantity all the time. One of the other things, by the way, that I wanted to talk to you about, and you didn't really talk about it a lot in TED Talk, and I can understand that because the Second Amendment is a very political issue while sexual assault is not, and I I can understand not wanting to infuse the two. But there's been so much hostility to the Second Amendment in the past, not even decade, really over the past seven, eight Mm -hmm. years. And it's just, it's been really surreal to watch. What do you make of kind of the recent buildup and hostility, especially amongst my generation? Because I've seen like there's very, there's not many, but there's more blue dog Democrats among the baby boomers and, uh, and among the older generations who do respect the Second Amendment. But what do you make of the sudden buildup and disrespect and the sudden hatred for the Second Amendment and for the right to bear arms and concealed carry among my generation specifically? When you have large organizations that people are looking to and trying to figure out how to act based on adults' actions, those are what are going to be mimicked. And we have seen this on both sides. When I quoted in the talk, we want those who love us to love us more and those who hate us to hate us more, that was something said directly to me about how I should change my messaging to pander to one side of an argument. And that's when I knew this isn't for me, but so many people buy into that And we're seeing that change actually play out now on a larger scale. Both sides are equally guilty of this. And we see it all the time. If you only look to one side of a feed on social media or a news outlet and you don't get the other side, you may not see that. You may really start buying into every single thing that they say. And once we start removing the humans from these issues and from these talking points, then our argument is already lost. So you're seeing a fanning of flames systematically happening over and over, and it's our job to call that out in a way that doesn't turn the other side off. You can have strong messaging that reaches both sides in a way that isn't going to piss off everyone at the same time. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> it's I see so many people on the right specifically trying to be controversial and trying to be edgy and trying to get those those just leftists triggered and it's if you are the side of individual liberty and if you go by the quote i think it's one of the best quotes uh that that was ever uttered by any president where ronald reagan said that uh, freedom is only one generation away from extinction it's true if yeah if you truly believe that i don't understand and that's why it especially shocks me that someone who is for the second amendment would say that to you i don't understand that's a losing strategy because the other side wants to take away your liberties it, to some extent. It, it, it doesn't matter if there's extremes on their side saying, oh, we, as much, uh, saying, oh, we, we want them to hate us more. We want our side to love us more. It's defending freedom is a much more difficult task. And right. defending individual liberties is a much more difficult task, especially when it comes to the Second Amendment. So I don't understand why so many people are taking up this. Quite frankly, it's a losing strategy. Because fanning those flames isn't doing anything for a movement. It's doing things for fundraising. And that's where the rub is. If you're looking to make money, then the more clicks, tweets, likes you get, that's where they're going to follow. And people 
easily get pissed off. We saw that with the Gillette ad. You bet your butt there are people out there deciding that they're going to shave for the first time because they agreed with what was in the ad. (laughs) That's how advertising works. And if we have our civil liberties being taken over by folks who just want to fundraise and line pockets, then sadly, that's not doing anyone any justice. So yeah, as long as there is conflict, there is going to be profit closely following. And it's our job to make sure that we're smart about how we have this this message. And I think it's, it's again, losing strategy. It's if you... It is. You can't have someone hating the, the liberty, individual liberty and rights. No. In the no. second, it's, it's not... I don't know. I don't understand. Like I said, I understand like that, that people who fundraise and people who want money mm-hmm. and fame and popularity are, are co-opting the movement for the Second Amendment and, and the individual liberties movement. It's just that I don't understand why so many people are really buying into, I won't name any names, but aren't are really buying into the modern day grifters. I was going to say, it's it's a grifter strategy. It's somebody who's very good in ad- advertising and PR for themselves. And if it's benefiting suddenly an organization that the members have best interests and movement in mind, that's a recipe for disaster. I mean, hopefully the right wakes up because I think that maybe like I think you'd, you'd agree that the grifters are getting more and more prominent in the movement. And it's a frightening thing. Right. They, ha- they have to be. I mean, there's if that's going to be the, the main pool of folks that you're looking to for information or for how to argue or have a debate, you know, as much as I don't like it. If those are the ones that are being prominently displayed, what are we teaching folks as they're up and coming and looking to have those honest conversations? Because I'll tell you, for somebody like me that's going to hang back, I'm looking to people more educated than me, people that are smarter, who have more experience, who have different experience in how to message and how to educate others. What's going to happen when people aren't able to make those separations and this is what they start taking on as a form of debate or discourse? It's not healthy. Well, Kimberly, we're about out of time, which makes me really, really sad. <laughs> well, anytime that you need a solid mom joke, you know where to find me. Oh, for sure. um, I also have my my podcast that I co-host with my friend Kirsta. It's called Life As She Knows It. Um, we're on there bi-weekly right now, and it's us doling out questionable life advice. <laughs> Is there anything that you're working on right now that you'd want people to know about and anywhere they can find you aside from the podcast, like on social media? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I I do my own stunts. I'm on social media (laughs) all the time. But the big thing that we're looking at right now is that TED Talk. Given that it is a conservative lean and more of a a right message just because of the concealed carry proponents, it's going to be an uphill battle to get all of those organic likes, shares, and mainly views. But if you can go on and share that, tell a friend, Watch it as many times as you possibly can. Then we get closer and closer to having that hit Ted's mainstream page. Um, and from there, it can really take off. And this message, hopefully, will reach the people that need to hear it most. Awesome. Well, Kimberly, thank you so, so much for coming on. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Nope. Anytime. Anytime you want to come on. I mean, I'd, I'd have you every episode if I could. <laughs> <laughs> I think you guys would get a little annoyed. But hey, that's what my podcast is for. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Lone Conservative. We'll be back Friday with another interview. Until then, have an awesome week.